it like it ends up being a fact, right? Like if you're happy or not happy today, mm-hmm. like if you can oh, I shipped that game and it was good. Like that's a fact that's yeah. true. But it's not going to be the thing that makes you feel like, ah, and now in my day-to-day life, I am more satisfied and <laughs> right. serene. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to veteran game designer Steve Gaynor. Steve is a co-founder at the Fulbright Company, where he is currently working on the immersive narrative game Tacoma. He is best known for his work on Bioshock 2, Minerva's Den, and Gone Home. Yeah, like, yeah, let's talk about Minerva's Minerva's Den a little bit. Sure. So, like, were you, you were there from the very beginning for that project, basically, and, like... Yeah, I mean, um, at the end of Bioshock 2, like, we knew we were going to have to do some DLC for it, yeah. but, like, they needed, like, they needed all hands on deck to get the game done, yep. so they were like, okay, we're not even talking about DLC out? until, like, the game's through cert, basically. Um, but I was interested in, in making DLC for the game, and there was already the, um, the promise of the XCOM like shooter game yeah. in there, like the Australia studio had been working on a really early version of that. And, um, and so I think a lot of people on the project were kind of like ready for something not to be working on Bioshock two stuff anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, and so there was a, there was a smaller contingent of the team who was like, no, I want to make more Bioshock. Yeah. Sure. And so like I was, I was before Bioshock two was like, on shelves, I was like, hey, I've got, like, some ideas for the DLC. I think this would be cool. Um, it actually, Minerva's Den originally came from something that J.P. LeBreton, the lead level designer, had told me. He worked on Bioshock 1. He was a level designer on Bioshock 1. Mm-hmm. And he told me about, he was like, he and Paul Helquist, who was the the lead designer um, mm-hmm. on on Bioshock 1, they were talking about how they were like, you know, Bioshock is a spiritual sequel to System Shock. Yeah. And wouldn't it be crazy, like, you know, Bioshock is, like, this sci-fi, like, high-tech, you know, like, city of the future. And they were like, wouldn't it be crazy if, like, the technology that led to the creation of Shodan had, like, come from Rapture and gone up to the... Like, someone had taken up to the surface and that was, like, the, the, right. the starting point and tied those universes together. And I was like... Well, we should just do that. <laughs> that sounds cool. Um, and so basically I was like, you know, I have this cool, I, I have this idea. Like, cause the other side of it is, you know, in the fiction in Rapture, there's this aspect, like the question, if you're going to make, you know, sing like story DLC for like a game like Bioshock is you're, you're going to make it in. It's like, you should visit a part of the city you haven't been to before. Right. Like, Bioshock implies that Rapture is a much bigger city than yeah. the parts you actually visit. So it's like, okay, well, there's all of these flying bots that like navigate on their own, and there's these turrets that have like target acquisition, and there's these um, you know, motion sensing doors that open and close when you go near them and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, there's obviously 
some kind of awesome mainframe computer somewhere in Rapture that's running all of this stuff. Um, And so between the whole, like, system shock connection thing and and the implication within the game that there must be some kind of computerization in this place, it was like, you know, I was like, hey... If, if we're going to make DLC, it would be cool to go to the computer center of Rapture and make it like a system shocky AI thing. Um, and so, yeah, uh, you know, I, I was, I, I was surprised, uh, on the day when, um, uh, Zach just pulled me into a side room at the studio and he was like, Hey, so, um, I'm going to make you the lead on the DLC. I was like, what? <laughs> he was like, yeah, I mean, you've got ideas for it. Yeah. Your, your levels are good. Um, you know, it, we'd, we'd like for you to, to be the lead designer on that thing. I'm like, okay. Um, and you know, I had done some writing on the main game cause like mm-hmm. over the course of development, they had been looking for a contract for like contract writing support for like tertiary stuff like splicer barks or like audio diaries that weren't mainline or whatever. And, um, you know, like I was talking about, I had like written comics up my own stuff and like, I had been writing my blog for a long time and all that stuff. So I was like, Hey, if you guys like need writing help, I could do that. Right. And they were like, eh, okay, we'll let you know. <laughs> uh, and then like a few months before they chipped, they were like, uh, we haven't been able to get a contract writer that we're happy with. Steve, didn't you say you would do an extra <laughs> job <laughs> for the same pay? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, um, so I, I, I wrote like. Five of the splicer bark sets, I think, on the main game, and I wrote like a number of yeah, kind of like side path audio diaries. Um, and so they were like, you know, you got an idea for the DLC. If you want to write the story and like be the the lead on the thing, um, you know, that's what we want you to do. So I was like, okay, I mean, that's a big responsibility, but I'm I'm let you know, let's go for it. Um, and so yeah, it was like the first the full development cycle of that game from start to finish was nine months, but mm-hmm. the first three months was just me and the, um, lead level artist. And so like, I, you know, wrote out the story arc for the, for what was going to happen over the course of the DLC. And then me and the lead level artist, basically I would gray block so I, I gray blocked all of the levels in the DLC and then he would go through and do like a pass on like, uh, let's not, let's make this not look like shit, you know, as far as like architectural proportions and all that kind of stuff. And we kind of went around on that. And so that was the first three months of like block everything in, do a basic scripting path of being able to walk it end to end and like click on the thing in the order to open the door and to mm-hmm. be able to get to like the end screen. Um, and then, yeah, like three months after we started that whole process and had been like, writing scripts and editing them and getting feedback from, um, the leads on that. Yeah. We brought in, uh, two additional level designers and two environment artists and a gameplay programmer. Um, and we started like blocking in the actual content and scripted stuff and new weapons and plasmids and enemies and all that kind of stuff. Um, so like production production on it was six months, um, end to end. Um, so, you know, it's like when you've, when you've got a bunch of pre-existing content to use and a bunch of stable development tools, like you can, you can knock some stuff out, man. <laughs> but it was a good experience, you know, like, um, just being, being able to be involved with Seems like people- all of the layers of design or all the layers of development from like 
being involved with casting the voice actors for the performances down to, yeah, actually scripting stuff and placing ammo, you know, and all right, those right, kind right. of things. Um, it's very holistic. Yeah. You know? It seemed to get very good critical response for, for DLC, for DC, DL, DLC. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in, in the sense that like most DLC kind of just, just passes, right? Like yeah. people don't, don't really single it out. Like we're, were people responding to the things that you were hoping they would? Like, I mean, like what, what was it that made it so like work so well for people? Um, so I think that, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, first and foremost, we were very grateful that it did seem like, like people really responded to it. And part of that, uh, goes to 2k in terms of like, they, they treated it like a, like a full release, Mm -hmm. like a small full release. But I mean, they did like, they sent me to a bunch of, they, to like, uh, outlets in the city to do like a little press tour for mm-hmm. it. And like, you know, we sent review codes to people and they, 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 they did a good job of like getting the word out and we like made a cool trailer for it. You know, it wasn't like they're just like, okay, we made it, we put it on the storefront we're done, you know? Um, but then I think once people actually got their hands on it, um, I think that a, one of my goals for the DLC was I thought it would be really cool to basically have, the full like player power arc of the entire of like a you know the full campaign of the main game but just like in three levels in this like four hour experience you go mm-hmm. from having like a melee weapon and one plasmid to like the full upgrade path of the sure. entire game so it's like i think that people responded to it being effectively just like a super condensed entire game you know like in in that that system space um do you think you think bioshock games are too long like not bioshock specifically but like right. like a lot of games are long yeah know? no i mean like i think that a lot of people i think that the the general playtime for minerva's den was like four to six hours mm-hmm. and i mean that's more or less the length of some games single player campaign right i mean i i think that um i think there's a lot of value to um giving a games campaign all the room that it needs to breathe but like i don't think bioshock one would have suffered from having his campaign edited down a little bit (laughs) a little bit um i i do think that's something that um that was just a straight up improvement in Bioshock 2. I think that actually the pacing mm-hmm. of of the single player uh experience um was really solid and I mean, you know, like there's there's no like comparatively I think that the pacing and the length and the overall like um yeah, moment to moment structure of Bioshock's 2's single player campaign is is just like better balanced right. as just like a thing. So I, I think that, I think that Bioshock one is like, obviously the more iconic, memorable kind of like thing. Sure. Um, but as something that's just like playable, you mm-hmm. know, you can like, you can play through the Bioshock two campaign and you're like, Oh wow, this is like, you know, I'm just, I'm rolling through mm-hmm. this. It feels, it feels good to get all the way through it. And by the time you're done, you're like, Oh wow. Okay. That was a, you know, uh, a, a solid, um, just solid progression all the way through. Right. Um, and so I think that, I don't know. I, I like a lot of games that are really long, but I think that, um, that 
there was an inner, I guess for me, it was sort of like, there was an interesting potential challenge there to say, like, if we just took out all of the downtime between continuing to like improve and improve, or, you know, make choices about what you're upgrading or whatever, and just like make it as condensed and focused as possible. Like we could do that and it would be cool, you know? Um, because the, because the other side of it is the only other options. I mean, not, I, there's a lot of options, right? But like the other options you have are either start the player with a whole lot of shit, yeah. which I don't think is a good place to go to, or only have them go through like the first three levels of the game's progression, uh, which is like, you already did that. Yeah. Um, or kind of pick and choose and be like, okay, you're going to go through the whole power arc but only of these three weapons and these four plasmas. So like, why do I get to choose that as the designer? Why not just say like, okay, like we're just going to say you can go from zero to a hundred and it's up to you to choose how you build that, you know, but like, and and we had to make some interesting compromises, like, or interesting adjustments. Like for instance, in, in, in the Bioshock games, you upgrade plasmids by going to a um, a gatherer's garden, um, like upgrade vending machine, basically. Mm-hmm. And so it has a whole list of all the plasmid upgrades and all the um, all the uh, tonic upgrades and stuff um, that you can get in it. But weapon upgrades are done with the the power to the people machines, which is like mm-hmm. one machine is one upgrade. And in Bioshock, in Bioshock one, if I'm not mistaken, each, each weapon only had two upgrades, I think. Mm -hmm. And if I'm misremembering, then that's on me, but I know that, or I'm almost sure that they added, that we added a third upgrade to each weapon in Mm -hmm. Bioshock two. And so that means that if we wanted to give you the full upgrade path for all the weapons, we have to have, you know, like maybe not three but like two or three upgrade stations for each weapon placed in three levels so like to do that it would have been like there's an upgrade station in every bathroom and there's another one down so like we we did a thing we were like okay we're going to remove that that aspect of player choice and instead say we're just going to place throughout the levels upgraded weapons like occasionally you find an upgraded version of a weapon you already have and so you know there were things that we had to do to say like if we want to support the idea of going from the bottom of the power curve to the top we have to adjust how some of the systems work um based on just like having less square footage right Right. so there there are things there there are some systems that effectively rely on larger scope and if the scope gets smaller the system has to to change so um there's certainly some stuff that it's that it's like those two things can't stand on their own. Yeah. But we we definitely wanted to say like we want to make a story-based DLC for this thing. We don't want to make it like that it happens, you know, between level 2 and 3 of the main game so yeah. you have to like you have to like insert it mentally there. Um we wanted to to have to be like a standalone story that takes place within kind of the same timeline and fictional universe, but that doesn't actually like touch the main game. So they don't have to like reconcile with each other, you know? Um, And so we're like, okay, in the main game, you play as like a prototype big daddy. You aren't the only one in the world. We'll say there was another one over here in this other part of the city. And he has his own story that takes place over here on the other, you know, on the South side of Rapture or whatever. Um, And you can feel like you started it, 
you played all the way through it. You got a satisfying story conclusion and you, you walked away from it saying like, okay, I've, I've got some closure, you know, like I, I, I had a, an entire self-contained kind of, um, uh, uh, experience like I get from a full-sized, you know, retail game, but it's been, you know, focused into this smaller piece. Um, and so I, you know, I, so I think, I think some of it was, was a response to feeling like, wow, there's like a lot there. I played through this whole thing that feels legit. And then some of it is just like, I think that something that the smaller scope gave us was it allows you to focus the story on like just one story. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's different aspects to it, but we could say like, that's that, you know, you, you say that and I think back to the Bioshock and that's. That's what I remember. It felt like you kept getting these ancillary, ancillary stories coming on that, like, you know, I'm like, this is okay, but, like, what about this other thing that I was supposed to be like, I'm like, you know, it just buddies the focus. Right? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I think that on the one hand, in a game like the original Bioshock, mm-hmm. it, 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 in the best case, functions to add richness and breadth to the idea of like, wow, there's a lot going on in the city and all adds up to this, this other thing. Um, but it means that all of those things do have to kind of coexist and, and focus does have to shift. Um, and so, you know, we were like, okay, if we've got three levels, we can say this, the entire story of this whole thing is the story of this guy and he lost his wife and he's trying to use technology to like overcome that. And what does that lead to from, for him? And you get to the end and you're like, oh, wow, I, I like kind of communed with this one guy's experience and got to be a part of it and then moved on. And, and so, you know, I think that being able to make, have the entire experience be focused on making a connection to that one character and, mm-hmm. and his story and his identity, I think is, is part of what connected with people on the like outside of like the gameplay, you know, content side. Yeah. Hmm. You know, I, we, we wanted to, we just, I don't know. We just wanted to, to, you know, do justice to, to the, you know, to, to the, to the property, to the, to, yeah. to Bioshock as a thing. And we wanted to be able to say like, if we're going to be given the keys, even just to like drive around in the side yard for a little bit, um, we want to be able to to speak to the most interesting stuff that Bioshock does, which is like set the game within a fictional context that, that, that defines part of it. You know? So it's like, if we're going to make a, a Bioshock story, that's about, you know, computing in the fifties, then it's like, we're going to involve Turing and, and, his involvement in creating these things as part of the world war two, you know, war effort and what the implications of why this technology is even here. And, you know, like we just made a decision that we were like, there hasn't been a, uh, a, a main character of color in, mm-hmm. in a, in a mainline Bioshock game, you know? So it's like, we're going to make this, the, our, the, the scientist character, the main guy in the game is going to be a black guy and it's like, okay, well, that's got some issues surrounding it. And, like, part of what I think is really valuable about... I remember one of the things that I found really valuable about the original Bioshock was the whole, like, in... Um, 
Neptune's bounty, uh, the the fisheries level. Um, there's like contraband, you know, smugglers, mm-hmm. and you open up the smuggling crate, and it has like Bibles and crosses in it, you know. And it's mm-hmm. like yeah. they weren't like they were like this is you know an objectivist society yeah, where li- yeah. where religion is banned, and so we're gonna like that's not something that I felt like I ever saw in mainstream games, like hardly at all, like being like, okay, we're going to acknowledge like that aspect of. And so like, you know, we wanted to say like, if we're going to say that there's a black character in a position of power in this city, but like coming from the surface world and within the the culture of the city, despite how progressive it aims to be and and blah, blah, blah. We want to like take the opportunity to actually like try and address that and acknowledge it and do something with it. So like, in those ways, hopefully, our aim to try to live up to the stuff that was best about the original source material kind of uh, showed through. You know? yep. Cool. Um, might be time to transition to gun. <laughs> sure. Um, did uh, uh, did how like how quickly after Minerva's Den did did you move on? Like, well, I, I so I I went I moved to Boston um, soon after. Oh, you actually worked at Infinite for a while. Yeah, okay. I were I I was at Irrational for almost exactly a year. So okay. well, that's a decent amount of time. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I moved there at the very end of 2010, mm-hmm. and I was basically there for calendar year 2011. Uh-huh. So, um, Levine. Never did my interview for my zine, but he did hire me, so <laughs> <laughs> I got to sit in a room uh, pitching design ideas at him for a year. So you know, he uh, he paid for it. Maybe if he had if he had done that interview, <laughs> things, would, things would have turned out differently. Um, no, I, I was I was hired as a senior level designer yeah. um, at Irrational, and uh, yeah, it was early enough that my main job was um, writing. Design basically writing like level pitches, like design. Like it was a similar situation where you know I came into it with Ken having been like the first level is this celebration in town center, yep. and then it turns dark, and then you go to Elizabeth's tower and you have to get her out, and then you know it's sort of like that overall flow. Um, and so I, I I caught a number of those levels in kind of the first half of the game, and my mm-hmm. job was basically like do a design pitch document bring it to Ken and the other leads and be like, wouldn't it be cool if this happened? And then this, you know, and and kind of talk through it and get it to the point where it's like, everybody agrees that's close enough to do like a gray block, initial playable block out and, and, you know, start looking at it on screen and work with artists to, you know, um, make a first playable of it and all that kind of stuff. Um, that was my, that was my main responsibility, um, for the year that I was there, the main level that I, that I spent the most time with, well, the two levels I spent the most time with when I was there were um, Finkton, which is the level that takes place in the factory town where you do a bunch of like jumping between dimensions to like start basically like kick off the like revolution that happens in the, in the city. And mm-hmm. then I, I, I spent a fair amount of time in the like, yeah, town center, like intro, like carnival and did the very first like prototype of the, did you play Infinite? Some. Yeah. Okay. I did, you know, like, I, I took the pitch from Ken for the, he was like, you know, he he had the whole, like, the whole, like, throwing the baseball scene, like, with yep. the couple on mm-hmm. the stage and all that yep. stuff, like, from very early, but I caught, like, doing the very first version of just, like, you know, prototyping that in and stuff like that. Yeah. That's um, an interesting scene. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> one could one could put it that way. No, I mean, he it, knows how to do his set pieces. Yeah, I guess. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it was it was an interesting time. A lot of a lot of um, a lot of ideas were kind of going on screen, you know, or, or being figured out by like the leads and other um, kind of like decision makers of the studio while I was there. So a lot of it was sort of like, okay, you know, like this this new thing, you know, this new idea has come in or this, this new aspect of the fiction and like, how do we integrate that? Um, but it was really good. You know, like, I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was one of those things where it's like, you don't, my, a lot of, let's see, two sides of the coin. One, one side of the coin that is like, it was sort of like the cartoonishly like platonic ideal of like what, you think your job like as a designer is going to be mm-hmm. is like go sit in a room with Ken Levine and tell him what ideas you think are cool. You should put in the game. And the other side of it is your job is come up with ideas that some other guy likes, which is a hard, sure. <laughs> which is a hard, this is a hard position to be in. Cause like, yeah. doesn't matter. Like maybe you like it. Maybe you think he'll like it. Maybe, you know, it's just like, it's, it's a lot of like, try it, see what you think, you know, like try to, try to develop a mental model of what someone else's expectations are, you know, but like, was that less of the system for Bioshock 2? I mean, like, um, because like theoretically it's not necessarily a different structure, right? It's just, I think the process was different. I mean, I think that like for better or worse, you know, at Rational, a lot of it was more like convince Ken, this is a good idea, and then when he says it is, that's what we're going to go build, right? Things, things flow through Ken, right? And and I and I mean, not entirely or anything, but my experience was that was much more of like a single focus there. Mm-hmm. At you know, at Marin, it was more of like there's a group that's involved, with, you know, blah blah blah. Um, well, there's there's pluses and minuses for both of those, right? Sure, and I mean, the, the thing is, like, like any like 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 two K Marin, like my jobs before it, like I learned a lot from my year at Irrational, I learned a lot from working, not just with Ken, but with like Nate Wells and Scott Sinclair and Steven Alexander and people that had, had worked at Irrational for a long time, worked mm-hmm. on Bioshock, worked on System Shock 2, worked on, I, mean, I worked with people there that worked on System Shock 1. Um, and so being around people that, you know, had worked on Thief and, yeah. and just seeing how they, how, both how they worked through problems but also how they handled stuff like talking about the game to press, you know, and like putting the game out in front of people and framing stuff in a way that people found interesting. And, and, you know, like I, I, I learned some really good, like practical stuff, process stuff from Ken, where it would be like, okay, here's my pitch for this level. You know, here, like factory level, the quest structure should be that you need to like, you need to get this Zeppelin so you can escape. So you have to like repair it, you know, I'm like, so you have to get the thing and the whatever and the refill the gas blimp, what, you know, like whatever I was pitching. And I just remember him being like, you know, like, well, did did you actually look up how a Zeppelin works? You know, like you've done (laughs) your research. And I was like, like, well, I mean, I don't know. It has a balloon in it. And, you know, like, he was very stringent about, like, yeah. like know about the thing that you're trying to make a thing about. Whether that's, like, the fiction of, like, 1912, you know, like, political situation that, like, the fiction of the game was based on to, like, if the quest is you need to 
construct a Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. Like, don't just assume there's probably some stuff. You, I don't know. You need a propeller, you know, like, I like go in and like, right. find out like, what would someone actually have to do in that situation? And like, it's going to, you know, the thing you do is going to end up being an abstraction of that. But like you learn through that process, you gain, you find out a bunch of options for stuff that you could do that you wouldn't have just made up from your own head. And right. I think that was like a big part of the overall process of just like, do your research to figure out how this would really work. And so like, you know, going forward from there, it helped me take seriously. Like when we were working on gone home, I'm like, I'm writing from the perspective of someone that has had very different experiences than me. And Mm -hmm. so I shouldn't just assume like, guess I'll just write this teen lesbian. Now let's see how that goes. (laughs) It's like, it's like, I, I was like, you know, I need to do the research of like reading accounts of people that have actually lived through this side of the human experience. And like, talk to people I know in real life and like interview them and do original research into like, what did you go through? Describe what you remember and like be able to draw on that stuff to bring it like, cause whether it's something very practical and mechanical or something that's very much about like someone's personal experience, it's about bringing an authenticity to how you express that stuff and knowing enough about it to know whether you're actually doing justice to the subject. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that I got to spend some time there. I mean, on some level, it's like working at a place that you've idolized and seeing how it actually functions. um, That means a lot, I think, you know, so I'm really grateful to everybody there that they actually like, yeah, had me on (laughs) for a while. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, but at the end of my year there, I was basically like, I mean, my wife and I relocated to Boston and like, we're, you know, she she's from Portland and like mm-hmm. blah blah blah. It wasn't like necessarily like where we wanted to live long term. And yeah. also basically I had gone from working on a team of eighty to a team of nine full time mm-hmm. content creators back to a team of like hundred and fifty. Um yeah. you know, and I was and and I was that exercise in contrasts sort sure. of made it clear to me that I was like after I'd after I'd been there for a year and like been able to contribute, but like it wasn't so close to ship that I was really screwing people over. If I left, I was like, I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I can, I don't think I can be working on projects this big anymore. I, and my wife and I, we both been, you know, kind of like traveling around chasing jobs and stuff. And I think we were both at a point where like, like the summer before we had gone back to Portland to get married. We had Uh been together for a long time before we got married. And then we went back and, got married in Portland and, and we were back there and we were like, what are we doing? We just need to, what are we like? This is where we want to actually yeah, be. So, be. so we just took the leap and said, let's move back there and then just we'll figure it out <laughs> once we get there. You didn't know what type of game you wanted to make at that point? Like, or what you were going to do? I mean, I knew that. Because unfortunately Portland is not a burgeoning hub of. Exactly. Development at all. Right. No, I mean, I, I knew that if we were going to, if I was going to keep making the kinds of games that I knew how to make or cared about then like yeah i wouldn't be able to just like put in a level designer application mm-hmm. to some you know to somewhere that's already making games in, in portland like if we we're gonna do it i would have to we would have to figure out how to do to make you know start something um i did a little bit of like contract work um in between just like remotely sure but um i mean i i, I think that i mean i i i've I wanted to make stuff that we 
knew how to make. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I it, the nice thing is I had spent a lot of time learning how to make games that were the kinds of games I cared the most about. So it wasn't like a hard thing or it's like, oh, I really want to be making, uh, you know, whatever Gran Turismo game, but all I know how to make is these darn Bioshocks. <laughs> um, and, but, but, you know, like going from there, it was definitely a question of like, well, okay, but if you're going to have a really small team, then what can you make, yeah, sure. you know? And, and what is the version of the thing that you can make? that you also care about and that can be the thing that like drives you, you know, because it's, it's a, it's a subset of stuff that you've made before, but it has to, you know, be on a totally different scale. And so you could, there's a lot of different answers to that question, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think it was, it was, you know, there, there was a, there was a bit of a, of a process of figuring out what exactly our answer to it was going to be, but we were really fortunate on Gone Home that... Were there the, some people that you knew you were going to be able to work with right off the bat? Or um, like, you had to figure out what you wanted to do first? Or? It was somewhere in between. I mean, so I knew that I wanted... So Carla Zamanja is um, my creative partner at Fulbright. And mm-hmm. she... Um, we had started working together at 2K because she was basically, like, doing, like... She was involved with the like voice recording pipeline mm. at 2K. So um, when I was writing Splicer Barks and and secondary audio diaries um, on uh, on the main game of Bioshock 2, she um, was basically being like the script editor and script supervisor for that. So she would you know give me feedback on like yep. the lines or whatever. Um, so she was basically my editor on that stuff. And so, and she was also, she's a a 2d artist. And so she had done a bunch of the posters in and other like printed materials in the main game of Bioshock too. So like on Minerva's Den, I was like, okay, we, I want to work together again. You know, we, we want to work together on the story stuff, the editing stuff. And then also we needed a bunch of new posters and signs and stuff for, for the DLC show, she did that as well. And so, like, we just had a really good working relationship. And, you know, a lot of the, like, story of Minerva's Den was hashed out with, like, she and I going to, like, get coffee in the afternoon and talking through, like, this and the other thing or whatever. So, like, we knew we wanted to work together again. And so after, yeah, we were, after, when I was leaving Boston, I was like, okay, I want to work with Carlo. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, I knew we would need a program, <laughs> pro- at least, at least one programmer. Yeah. Um, and so I, I reached out to a programmer, um, Janeman Nordhagen that we worked with at, um, at 2K Marin. He had been a UI programmer and a gameplay programmer and, um, and. Why did you choose him? We, well, he, um, he had. I mean, he was, he was one of the people early on the project. Um, mm-hmm. We had worked together, you know, so he had, he had kind of been through the project with everybody. And there were some points where, um, well, I mean, honestly, like, I remember around the time that, that I was, like, moving back to, to Portland, I remember, I remember seeing him tweet something mm-hmm. that made me think, like, it kind of seems like he's like thinking about not wanting to work on like triple A <laughs> games anymore. Right. Um, I could lure him. And, well, I was like, I mean, if, if he's, I'm like, Oh, maybe, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, 
And uh, I remember when we were working on, on Bioshock 2, I had this pitch. So I really like the bots in Bioshock, like the flying mm-hmm. bots. And I, I really liked being able to hack them and have them follow yep. you around. And in Bioshock 2, they're, they we, we really supported that in a lot of different ways. So like we introduced a tonic where if your bot is damaged, you can uh, prob them to like pay some Eve to repair them. Um, the, the highest level of the security command plasmid in, um, in Bioshock 2 just allows you to summon a bot, like spend Eve just summon a bot so you can just always have bots with you. And there was, I, I had this pitch that when you upgraded your security, like when you, when you were investing in bots, basically, I was like, you should be able to go up and interact with one and then it pops up the on-screen keyboard and you can just name them whatever you want. And then it'll say that instead of mm-hmm. security bot, yeah. right? And they were like, and we're not doing <laughs> we're not doing that. Um but then uh I Yanaman at some point kind of like, you know, occasionally someone on the team will be like, well I'll stay late and like get a thing in. Yeah. And so he basically had a simplified pitch that was like, what if we just put in a list of names mm-hmm. and once you've upgraded to a certain point when you get a bot you don't even choose it just randomly assigns okay. one of like a hundred something names and it just like got into the game at some point you know it's like that's a really good like middle ground of like what's something that kind of expresses what this is meant to do but doesn't mean we have to involve like the soft keyboard integration and all this kind of stuff right. um and like you know, I, so so between like, like I, I think that you know between the history with working together and yeah, just the the vibe that it was like maybe yeah. something he would be into. Same with Carla. You know, I think it's sort of like I mean, and I mean, there's 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 some practical stuff. I wasn't really thinking of it in in these terms, but I mean, it's true. It's like you know, none of us had kids, right? None of us were, like, tied to a specific place. You know, it's sort of, like... You could all do something super risky. Yeah, exactly. It could be, like... You feel worried about your co-worker who, like, what if this all goes down for them, right? Right, yeah, because, I mean, if we were all able to say, like, we're going to invest our our own, like, savings, and, Mm -hmm. you know, just, like, we have to just live off of what we have for long enough to, to finish this game, like... Saying like, oh, but, you know, I can't, if I run out of money, it's not just me, it's my family or whatever. So like, um, the stars aligned in a lot of ways to mean like there were people, we'd all work together, had some, had the skills that were required and were actually like able to do something like this, um, that allowed the project to happen. Um, we, we, we started, uh, a, a first person you know, making a first person game that was just me, a level designer and writer, mm-hmm. um, Yanaman, a programmer and Carla, a 2d artist and story editor. Um, have you noticed the discipline that's missing from this equation? You need 3d art. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to make a 3d like video, 2D artists. Okay. yeah. Um, some book covers and some, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. A lot of cereal boxes. Um, <laughs> the house is made of cereal boxes. It's crazy. <laughs> Um, so we started without a 3D artist, and we were like, okay, so well, somewhere between we'll, like, you know, like, buy assets online and, like, maybe, you know, work with, like, 
contract 3D artist or something. We'll figure it out, whatever. Right. Um, so that's one of those things that, like, on the one hand, I'm glad that we started it that way because, like, if we had said we can't start this project until we have a 3D artist, we might have never started it. But also, I'm like, we started that project without a 3D artist, <laughs> um, and and like it was just it was a it was a very like just blessed project in a lot of ways as far as serendipity go. Like, so I was talking about the whole research thing. Um, so I, 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 I wanted to interview some people mm-hmm. in real life so that I couldn't just like, cause I was reading like blog posts people had made or reading like books, you know, like nonfiction, like memoir kind of books and stuff like that. But I was like, I want to be able to like talk to, but you would, you, you'd already decided at this point that it was going to be about a teenage girl about being right. a lesbian and like, yeah. That, that was that there from just the very beginning or that was there from early on like that was there so it was like our our process was okay i'm gonna make a first person game that's like bioshock without any shooting like yeah. you walk around you see environmental storytelling you find audio diaries yeah um, but we're a small team so we need to have like a small self-contained environment yeah, um, I mean it's it's easy to forget that like you have elements from the Shock series, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. you you just throw away a lot of the stuff that it's it really is like first, it's right? a subset. Yeah. It like it's Bioshock minus everything except like the first person story exploration audio diary stuff, and then plus the like object examination mm-hmm. like note reading sure. stuff. But like we've got a mini map that you know, like whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, like yeah. um. And, uh, and, and so, you know, we were like, okay, if that's the heart of the experience, but we're a small team, so we need to make like a small, single contiguous space that doesn't have a lot of floor square footage overall. It's like, okay, well it could be just like a family's house that'll have a lot of stuff in it that you can Mm -hmm. tell who these people were. It's small enough. We can build it. Okay. And so then the question is like, so the the conflict that drives the story has to happen like inside the house, right? Like it can't be about, it can be a game where you explore a house, but all the interesting stuff happened, you know, whatever. Yeah. Some in, uh, at the, at the, I don't know. Yeah. At some, at some place you never get to visit. Right. So it's like, okay. So that, so the, the conflict kind of has to happen between the, like within the family Mm -hmm. on some level. And so we were just thinking, you know, we were thinking of, of examples and we were just like, you know, the, I was like, okay, well, you know, Romeo and Juliet is like a classic, like the kid falls in love with somebody they're not supposed to parents are mad about it. It's like, that's like irreconcilable differences that can drive a whole thing. And we were like, you know, uh, the modern version of that wouldn't be, you know, uh, two feuding clans probably. (laughs) But like if, if the kid falls in love with somebody of the same sex and the parents don't agree, you know, aren't aren't supportive and like, you know, she's like, afraid of what the other kids at school are going to think. And there's all those, those sorts of things. Um, and so that was our basic driver. We were like, okay, it's going to be about this kid and what she's going through and the person she falls in love with. And it's a love story and like, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, yeah, at that point it's sort of like, yeah, you have that realization of like, well, I'm a 30 year old guy, right. <laughs> Writing a, a teen lesbian. Okay. So I, so you, it's like, you you could say, well, that means I shouldn't do that, but you can also say that just means I need to take it really seriously. You know what I mean? Um, like, if you're going to do it, you have I to mean, do it in yeah. a way that, like, 
I mean, I think it would be very easy for you to do it poorly. Yes. Right. Yep. Okay. Well, that's the third. That's the third option. <laughs> not do it. Well, not do it and take it really seriously, or just say, "Yeah, fuck it. I don't <laughs> like yeah. whatever." I mean, I, don't, um, I mean, should lesbians lesbians not be able to write stories about straight people? Yeah. I mean, I, mean it's, I, I think that everybody. I mean, I, I'm probably being a little reductive. There, uh, yeah, and I mean, fair enough. But I, I mean, I, I think that there, there's a there's a question of just like. If one is not given license to write outside their own experience, then you can only write autobiography, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, there there are certain um, uh, fields that you could step into that are more or less fraught than yeah. others, right? But at the point where we decided, here are our characters, we're more interested in writing a teen girl for mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, just like, that was basically just a subjective experience like are we picturing the, yeah, the why ki- did you choose a girl instead of a guy i think just me and carlo were both like i don't know, i think it should be the daughter of the family like i don't think it was heavily considered i think mm-hmm. we were both just like we both that's what i don't know we want to do that <laughs> yeah. you know and then and so then you have to follow the implications of that yeah so um so i wanted to interview people so i interviewed um a woman that uh, my wife had gone to grad school with mm-hmm. and um and I knew of Emily Carroll, who is a comics artist. And I just follow so, so I followed. I was following her on Twitter because she had done really good Bioshock Infinite fan art <laughs> when I when I was at Irrational. I was like, wow. she does like the best. She's done like my favorite, you know, like Infinite fan art. She had done just really these really cool drawings of Elizabeth in in her her comic style that she does, mm-hmm. and she had done a bunch of like Fallout fan art and stuff. So I had followed her. And, um, I had surmised, uh, that she was married to a woman. So I'm like, okay, uh, she seems cool. We have kind of a rapport online. And so I reached out to her and I was like, uh, I don't know if you would ever be cool with me interviewing you about your experience growing up, uh, like when you were a teenager, but like, you know, if that was ever, I knew she was in Vancouver, BC. So like Mm -hmm. not very far from Portland and everything. And so she was like, oh, actually, I'm coming down to Portland next week for this comics convention, so we could do it then. I was like, oh, okay, good, <laughs> let's do that. And she was like, I'll bring my wife, Kate, you can talk to her too. And I was like, okay, cool, this sounds good. So um, so I, I brought my recorder to um, a diner in, in Portland, and we met up. And uh, I was like, hey, I'm Steve, and, you know, Emily and Kate. And I was like, cool, blah, blah, blah. We're going to know each other, you know, just like small talk, whatever. I was like, so, Kate, what do you do? And she was like, oh, I do 3D art for video games. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow. do you? <laughs> she oh, was like, yeah, great. you know. I, uh... And so she. Like, we could really use a lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> and if you know 3D art, like, wow, this is like, this is so perfect. <laughs> but, like, she, 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 was, she was working on Facebook games, right? Uh, so it wasn't, she wasn't like. Like it wasn't like FPS, it wasn't like high res stuff. But she, um, you know, her day job was working on like uh, on 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 mobile and and Facebook games. But she kind of like on her own time was maintaining a portfolio of like nice like high res environment art because you know she was interested in mm. she was you know expanding the craft of, of what she did. And I think you know she didn't want to be uh, uh, married to like thirty two by thirty two textures for yeah. the rest of her life or whatever. So like. Um, you know, through the whole, like, I need to re- reach out and, and take this research seriously and try to like, you know, not just rely on what people have already written down. We just happened into a 3d artist who similarly was like, she was working on a project she wasn't super psyched about. Yep. She was able to, you know, take a risk on us and, you know, she, 
didn't have she didn't have a ton of experience making the kind of art that we needed, but she was very capable of like growing into the into that um into that position and she ended up making, you know, almost all of the 3D art in the entire game. Um minus, you know, a few props that we got from other people that we knew that like wanted to help out just That's kind cool. of like which, which one of these pieces, people but... spoke at the level design? Um me and Kate did a, a dual talk like we yeah. did a talk together um last year yeah okay I remember yeah. Seeing that. yeah yeah okay cool. yeah we we talked about kind of like the art and design of the gone home house from those right. two directions um and yeah she's our, our 3d artist still um on tacoma so um yeah sometimes sometimes these things if a if a really good nice available 3d artist had not fallen into our laps i don't know exactly how that would have worked out but Sometimes you don't question providence, I guess. Yeah, well, that's cool. Yeah. So, um, all right, well, so you got your team. <laughs> yeah. And, um, like, how do you... Yeah, I mean, so it seems like that's the, the probably the biggest hurdle to get over is, like, how do you tell the story? Yeah. Right? Like, you mentioned you were kind of getting to that before. Right. I mean, so, you know, we had a... We had a an example structure to work from, right? Like, I mean, I had learned a lot about guiding the player through first person, through like non totally linear first person levels via Bioshock stuff. And, you know, we knew we were like, okay, you're, you're going to find notes and objects in the house and be able to like really look at them in detail. And we're going to have audio diaries that are like Sam getting to tell her story in her own words but we didn't really know exactly how that all lined up, you know, because like, you know, the Bioshock style is like, you're going around, you're finding ammo pickups, you're opening, you know, like containers. And then occasionally you find a tape recorder, you know, and yeah. the tape recorder is the audio diary. It's like a game symbol language thing for like, this thing is that thing. But the thing is like with gone home, we knew that the game was about, expending attention on every like trying to like finding all the details in the game was the game right mm -hmm. and so i knew early on that like if we had a consistent game object that was like this is an audio diary there'd be two problems with it one of which would be that means that sam either tore out the pages of her notebook and like sprinkled around the yeah, house. Yeah, scattered them around the house reason. like a little level designer, or that she was recording them on a tape and then leaving yeah. the tape around. And it's just like Yeah, it's tough. I mean audio diaries never really made much sense anyway. Right. And but you didn't necessarily have to face that problem because there's so many things that don't it's a fantastical setting, right? Like right. it's just like sometimes stuff doesn't have to make sense. But right. like you kind of have it, to make yeah, sense. Yeah, when when you're like home. this is a totally normal house. Yeah. So like if there are these audio diaries around everywhere, then Sam put them there, and that's just like now you're now you're not now you're just thinking about how weird that is, and yeah. that's all there is to it, right? And so you know we knew what our we knew what the we knew what the the base elements were, right? Mm -hmm. It's like objects, notes, audio diaries, and like how to present at least the audio diaries kind of an open question. And I remember I was I was I was. I was in the bathtub and I had, I was, you know, it was one of those things that just like my brain was just using background cycles mm -hmm. for. And I remember having that like epiphany, like all at once that was like, okay, what if an audio diary could be attached to anything? 
And the reason that it's playing is because actually the framing narrative of the game is like, unbeknownst to you, this is Katie thinking back to when she was going through the house and finding significant objects and being like, oh, that's what that meant. Or like, that's what that was relevant to, etc. And it, like, it's not spoken. The player doesn't have to know that. But in my mind, I was like, oh, so like an object that's significant to an audio diary is the thing that triggers that to happen. And therefore, you're not just looking for the tape players. Right. You're like anything could have anything in it and it's just it, like See, it justifies weird. itself at the end you know af- yeah. after the fact if you even you know it's put a that weird together idea because like it kind of doesn't make sense yeah really. it doesn't make sense but in, like in, in it doesn't make sense like in the it, present tense right. like when, when you're encountering it when it's happening like you're you got the, the thing is happening that you want to happen which is you're hearing the audio you're looking at the object and but you're not grounding it in something like super artificial right right yeah so, it's it's not literal right yeah. it's a it's a and you know the the yeah the last thing that you click on in the game is the diary that contains all of the yeah. text that you've been mm-hmm. hearing and so you know it is sort of like it's this weird it, loop it makes yeah, yeah it makes yeah. a loop out of the the experience but like you know, we went in knowing like, yeah, here's the ingredients and like, how do we make this actually support the experience? Um, and, you know, I think that part of what gave us the confidence to actually do that is just like kind of having been through enough of like shipping like Bioshock stuff or whatever, we are sort of like, everybody knows that after the fact you go online and you talk about, Oh, isn't it weird how people like yeah, record yeah. their inner thoughts on these tape players and leave them around everywhere? Yeah. But like when you're playing it, you're not yeah, thinking yeah, you're that. Thinking about, yeah, you're yeah. like, oh, it's one of these, and yeah, you get so it. There's so many things about games that just like if you talk about them, they just it makes no sense. But right. like it somehow makes sense in the moment right. when you're doing something because like you just and and that well, was basically it's so hard to sum up. Yeah, that was where we were coming from. You know, with coming from with the way audio diaries are presented in Gone Home was like. It won't make sense when you first encounter it, but like I know from player psychology that the 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 arc will be da da da. I'm clicking on some things. I'm looking at some things. I close this document. Whoa, an audio diary is playing. Well, that's weird. Oh, I guess that's how this game works. Mm-hmm. And then you never think about it again until like at the end, it's like, Oh, that has a justification. Cool. And then you're good. Right. Um, but you know, I think it's easy to agonize over like, but players won't know why it's happening. They'll be confused and they'll think it's dumb. And maybe we shouldn't do it. Because you knew not to do the, the weird thing of like leaving the tapes around or the, the, you know, fragments of the diary. But you also knew that like, it's okay to do this thing, which like, yeah, you know, if the player thinks about it too much, it's going to like be weird. Yeah. It, like if you're really, yeah. Like bogged down. I think, I think some of it is like the one, th- like the bad version asks you to think about it. And then the yeah. good version asks you not to think about it. Right. You know what I mean? And, and if you, if you yeah. just accept it yeah. and you're like, Oh, I guess I, I don't understand why this would be happening, but I guess that's how, and it, it's it at least like, it's a consistent, inconsistent system. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, it could be attached to anything, 
but they always work the same way once one happens, right? Yeah. Um, and so if you can internalize that and be like, well, I guess that's just the rules of this game, right. then um, then you're along for the ride. Yeah. Uh, and just being able to, to, to justify it at some point is a bonus at that point. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, but yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it was a, it was a, it was a weird, good development cycle. You know, we, we lived in the house together and mm-hmm. office was in the basement and, you know, we, we found a, our, our voice actor, um, Sarah Robertson who played, um, or sorry, uh, her screen name her uh, her professional name is Sarah Grayson. Sorry. Um, uh, is she was a local mm-hmm. actor um who we we found from a local casting agency you know it was a it was a lot of like bootstrapping you know kind yep. of like hey what's here you know what what what's 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 around us uh how can we make that work um you know like the the band that is Lonnie's band in the game mm-hmm. um the kind of garage band that isn't one of the 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 like actual period bands of the time. Um, that band, the lead singer of that band, we met her because we, we released our trailer for the game that had like the licensed music in it, like the heavens of Etsy and, um, music in it. And like the same day, someone wrote us an email and she was like, Hey, I'm an organizer for a local riot girl music festival. Uh, I just saw about your game. Would you want to come show it at our Riot Girl Music Festival? <laughs> we were like, okay, we'll haul a PC down there. That sounds cool. So, like, we went to that thing and we showed it in the back room and it was fun. And um, one of the volunteers at uh, at the show who was, like, helping, you know, just, like, with whatever stuff they needed for, like, setting up stuff on stage or whatever, she, like, played the demo and, like, maybe played it for, like, 20 minutes or something. I was like, oh, this is really cool. And she left and had to do some stuff. And then she came back at the end of the night and she played through, like, the whole thing for, like, an hour plus. Like, mm-hmm. just, like, and it was really good playtest data. I was like, oh, hmm, I should, you know. Uh, but then afterwards we were talking about it. And I was asking her about her, you know, what she thought of it and stuff. And she was like, oh, also, I'm in this band. It's called The Youngins and you should listen to our music. And I was like, okay, cool. And uh, And so we listened to her music and we were like, Oh, this is like exactly what we were picturing for Lonnie's band. And so, you know, it's like, it was a lot of that stuff of just sort of like, oh, hey, you know, maybe this is, maybe, maybe we could, you know, use the music from that girl who was at the show that we were showing the game at, you know, um, very kind of like, uh, just grab, you know, grabbing stuff as we could and just trying to, to, to do the whole, like, you know locally made thing (laughs) you know so it seems like what a lot of people responded to positively with gone home was that you know in some sense the the player interaction was like kind of like piecing together the story that was coming to you in all these weird out of control fragments right where it's like you know you're like reading chapters randomly from a book right yeah um is that something you guys thought about early on like were you more were you ever more was it ever more linear like um, I think that, I, th- I think this is actually part of, um, like what you were talking about with the whole, like, if you're the person who placed all the stuff, you can't really get an idea of what the, the mm. end result is going to, or what the, what the, what the end effect is going to be for someone who's encountering it for the first time. I think there's actually a bunch of stuff in there that we didn't even think of 
really as being placed non-linearly because, you know, like I already knew what all the stuff in a row was going to be. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so I was like, well, I know where this is going. Yeah. Uh, we need a chapter from Sam's, like, you know, fiction writing here. Okay, uh, that should go here. And then, like, don't really think about it, but I was like, oh, okay, like, after the fact, you're like, oh, right, that means that most players will encounter, like, the first thing in the chain, and then the last thing in the chain, and then the middle, and, like, I wrote them in order, right. and, and, I and you know, like, it, it some things, I think, um, might seem more conscious and intentional than they really were, where it's more like, okay, let's put this and then this, oh, we need something like this here, oh, we can put this here, and, like, it's cool that... In spite of it all, um, people are very capable of like making those a chronological connections. Yeah. You know, when they because if you find if you find a, if you find a, b, and c in total, yeah. uh, people are actually really good at like putting them in order, yeah. even if I they mean, found them out of order. You know, it's more interesting to like not you know, it's like you did it the you did the like the official way, right? Right, and then like you know, it's it's. It becomes more interesting if it's like it's not in the order that obviously makes sense. And right. Like, you know, you make some bad assumptions, maybe. Right. And like, you know, you get get corrected and. Uh, right. Um, well, or you see things that are insignificant, and then, or you don't have context for, and then gaining the context for them later is a lot more interesting than being totally set up for something and then seeing the thing. Yeah. You know what I mean. Some, um, yeah. Sometimes I pick up a, if there's a book that I'm not sure if I want to read. Sometimes I just like open in the middle and I just start reading. Yeah, and uh, it's always been a really interesting experience because, like, then like the first part of the book becomes this totally different experience than you would have gotten the other way around. Right. right? And like, I'll never know what it would have been like to read that book the normal way. Yeah. Right. But I got yeah. my own kind of bizarre version of it. Right. And <laughs> yeah. Like, um, that's yeah. really cool. Yeah. You know, that's the. Um, no, it was done. It was popped in my. I don't know if this was popped in my head. What do you guys put in the bathrooms? Like, were there mirrors? Um, we made medicine cabinets that had like like wooden slats on the front. Like, basically, we had this. Um, we had this 1990 Sears home catalog mm-hmm. uh, that we use as reference, and so they had bathrooms and bedrooms and kitchens and all this right. kind of stuff. And yeah, we saw this. Um, this medicine cabinet where instead of having a mirror on the front, it was like, because obviously I was just, yeah. thinking, like you can't obviously have mirrors. Yeah. Like everything I really at the end of, at the end of gone home, I'm like, Hey, there are no mirrors in that house. Because obviously like you'd be totally screwed. Yeah. <laughs> Either that or you're all vampires. Right. right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, we, we were like the only place that you're going to be like, there should be a mirror here uh-huh. is the bathroom. So we'll make a medicine cabinet that doesn't have a mirror on the front of it. Um, the other thing that we didn't do was there's no showers in the house. The green briars only take baths. Yeah. Because we, I, you know, I like, you know, you have to be able to use the sinks. Like you have to be able to use the faucets. We're not going to let you do it. And so like, you know, the bathtub, it's fine just to have it flow into. But as soon as you can turn the on the shower, it's like, well, now I want to get under it. You know, <laughs> it's like, no, we don't want because now you're all wet. I mean, we're just not like we're not getting into that situation. Um, so yeah, no showers, no mirrors, and uh, no shoes. No shoes, and yeah. uh, no shoes. Because as soon as you make one pair of shoes, you need to make twenty. 
You got three people that live there. Yeah. They need inside shoes, outside shoes. <laughs> they need some Converse. They need, yeah. Uh, so, you know, so there's barefoot vampires <laughs> that don't take, like soak, that only like take the tub. <laughs> they only take sit down baths. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and, and it's one of those things that, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's one of those things that, like, being cognizant of what, it's, it's the whole, like, you know, the, uh, the phrase that Hitchcock, used or popularized the the fridge moment you know where it's like there are certain things that are okay if they don't make sense as long as you don't think about it until after the credits yeah. have already rolled and so like you know we our, our two options were make muddy boots and sam shoes and dad shoes and mom shoes and put them in the closet or just don't make any <laughs> right. and nobody's gonna notice but where were all the shoes <laughs> until maybe sometime later? Uh, and, you know, like, I think that's true of the entire house in Gone Home. It's like the density of the house, practically speaking, is very low. Mm-hmm. You know, like you go into a room, a bedroom. Yeah. It's like, actually, there would be way more crap in this. But like, there would just be stuff. Right. Yeah. And the layout's pretty weird. The layout is also very abstract. <laughs> um, but hopefully when you I mean, I think that generally speaking, when the player is in the situation, A, they're thinking locally, mm-hmm. you know, about like, okay, the hallway leads to the bedroom, leads to the master bathroom, you know, yeah. that's how a house works. Um, or you're thinking, okay, there's a bed and there's posters on the wall and there's a desk with schoolwork on it and it's kind of messy. This is a teenager's room. Yeah. And you're, you're not like, well, but there would be like 10 times as much stuff in here if this was really a teenager's room. And you're like, no, I... It's, you know, it's like, it has all the signifiers of what this place is. Mm-hmm. And I accept that this is a representation of that. And, and my mind is much better at acknowledging that all of the proper, like, major signifiers are here than it is at conceptualizing what is all the clutter that is missing. You know, because, like, in life, that's the stuff we tune out, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, not that the, not that the, the listeners can can see this but like if you look over this desk right now you know you don't know how many cables are yeah. plugged there's tons of cables joke. and crap plugged in there and I, and, and I just got here <laughs> <laughs> and that's the stuff that your brain is yeah. just like there's something i don't know there's something there just tune it out you yeah, know yeah. um and so no it kind of like putting the stuff on screen that the player's brain knows needs to be there to be this kind of space and then just like letting the rest of the stuff go yeah 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 uh, it also it also in practical terms like gameplay terms it means that we the game filters itself to say like in in gone home you need to be able to click on everything examine everything yep. read everything and so if we only put in the stuff that you can actually do that with then like that solves itself you don't have to say like well why can't i mess with all the pile of you know stuffed animals that are cluttered in the corner it's like well cuz there's a one stuffed animal it's on the bed you yep. can click on it you get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's one of the things that's supposed to be in a teen girl's room. You get it. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so you guys, you guys did gun home. I'm kind of curious, like, how, like, what what you thought was going to happen. Like, what you thought the reception was going to be like for gun home before, like, it came out. Um, By the, so, I mean, our biggest goal was to, like, make something we would like if we were players and like by the end of the thing we were like i think we made a game that's good okay i think we you know i think i would like this if i if i downloaded it um and i I think that we basically just thought 
there will be some people that like the game because mm-hmm. it's the kind of game that they it it's doing things they're interested in. It's like they're the kind of player that wants story in games and is interested in this kind of story and can get into what we're doing. But like the game only really does one thing. So if you're not into that thing, then like you won't like it and that's fine. And that means that, you know, our audience will be limited to people that are like into that. And, and hopefully if they play it, they'll think it's a good one of those and everybody else will be like, Oh, I don't really, I don't know. That's not my thing. Um, and I think that the response, um, the positive response and the like discussion that it led to, uh, was, um, much more than we had expected, (laughs) you know, just like review scores and people writing a lot of think pieces and like award nominations. Like it was, it was a much more enthusiastic, like a larger and more enthusiastic response than, than we could have imagined. And then I think in response to that, like the, you know, backlashy kind of aspect was also, it was, it was much more like we are, I think that in all, we are fairly, you know, reasonable people and we were just sort of like some people like it and some people won't and we did not imagine it being as polarizing as polarizing either in terms of like game game of the year kind of stuff or people being like then it becomes like perceived as a threat right yeah or there's plenty of other games out there that could also be seen as the end of gaming as we know it right (laughs) Right. but like no one is necessarily buying them so it doesn't really matter right right? yeah yeah and uh, so, you know, it was, uh, it was certainly interesting. Um, uh, but you know, I, I think that any negative stuff is like far outweighed by the amount of response we got from people that were like, this game really personally meant a lot to me for X, Y, Z reason. You know, I connected to this because it reflects the experience of someone that is in my life who I care about, or it reminds me of my relationship with my kids or I went through something a lot like that, you know, like whatever, whatever aspect of it, it is that people were like, I saw myself in this game and that mattered mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that, that, that is all you can really hope for when you're trying to put something out into the world, you know? Yeah. So what did it feel like to, it's kind of, I'm not sure right this way to ask this question, but like, you were making a game that, like, very few other people were trying to make a game like this, right? Like, it was, you know, uh, it was a very unusual choice. And there w- it didn't really have an obvious commercial path, right? Like, you, know, you could probably, I could see you could probably do some math. and like, oh, we might, you know, probably maybe do okay if this happens and that happens. Yeah. But I can only assume it, it succeeded, you know, like, beyond what you guys could have imagined. Right? Yeah, yeah. For sure. Like, what does that, what does that feel like? Um, I mean, it is, I mean, it's, it's surreal, I guess, you know, I mean, like when, when we, when we put on tuxes and evening gowns and went to the BAFTAs in London (laughs) and like went up on stage, you know, like, it's like, okay, I didn't expect to have to rent a tuxedo as a, a result of this game, this game. You know what I mean? Um, 
or, you know, any of the, you know, any of the aspects of just like people, yeah, people's response to it or, you know, just like, okay, uh, we need to record an acceptance video for the Spike VGX Awards, <laughs> you know, just like, like, you know, it's like, it's weird stuff where you're just yeah. like, okay, people are like, like people really care, you know, like the thing that we made actually spoke to people in a way that, you know, we, we, we could only assume would have been much more subdued than it ended up being. And I think it, you know, I think it was a time and place thing of like, like you said, it was, it was a game that certainly had precedence, not just in like what we had worked on professionally before, but you know, we were, we were looking at games like Dear Esther and mm-hmm. Proteus and, you know, like the mod version of the Stanley Parable, mm-hmm. you know, and, and even, a you know, Amnesia, which is obviously a horror game, but it's also like, it's a non, you don't have any weapons. Right. It's, it's like a non, non-combat uh, yeah. horror game. You know, these were all kind of things where it's like, oh, people are making things like this. And we knew that like, dear, like people had bought a lot of copies of Dear Esther and stuff, you know, so we were like, okay, there's like. People have made games like this. There's an audience for it. If we do a good job, you know, et cetera. Um, I mean, you know, like it to to be fairly unvarnished about it. I mean, it's it's very it is it was very gratifying to be like, wow, people like think you know think this matters, you know, yeah. and and um, and to be able to actually say like, oh wow, doing that thing was worth it you know yeah. is like it's we're we're very grateful for that because i mean there are tons and tons of projects that people put you know years of their life into and you put it out there and it's sort of like you know people kind of shrug and right. like that could be any project you know um and so you know when you get to the point where you're like wow a lot of people actually really care about this it's um it's weird and, but at the end of the day, it's good, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, I mean, you, you, I mean, I think you you've like, got to, you've got to feel like you've, you have to, I mean, people had an incredibly uh, strong response to like your work on Civ, for right. instance. Right. And like, mm-hmm. it's a huge project, but also, uh, the, the enthusiasm and like, that feeling of like, I mean, I don't want to speak for anybody else, but I feel like your sieve was like, people were like, oh, this is like the best sieve in years, you know, kind of thing, right? Like, well, I don't know. It's, I, it's I, also I, like the type of question that like, you know, it, it feels awkward to try to answer, you know, sure. like it's hard. Yeah, to, yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was, that was also like a crazy surreal time in my life. Yeah. I'm like all this stuff, because I've just been working so hard, like pushing that boulder up that hill you know, for years yeah. and years, getting, trying to get that done, and then I'm like, I, I, I guess we did it, right? right? Like, you know, <laughs> exactly. you know, it's like, 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 what's that best case scenario that, like, you, you know, you think about a little bit, but you try not to, like, right. and then, like, like it happened. I, I don't know, you know, and yep. like, and I mean, I, at the same time, like, I, you know, I, I've tried to remind myself since then that, like, a lot of that stuff is this, like incredible confluence of like the stuff the place you came from your own abilities and this this time and place where it all kind of came together at once yeah right right. you know and you know since then you know my career has its ups and downs and like i'm very happy with what i'm doing right now and like excited for the future but like to some extent it's you don't want to try to 
you just have to like enjoy what happened. Right. Right. And be like, you know, I'm so grateful. Like that thing happened in my life and like, just have it that thing. But like, try not to let that define like what, what happens next because yeah. it's, um, I, I think some, sometimes like thing, you know, like, you know, except for like the, the, the title music for Grammy, right? right? Like that wasn't, that wasn't part of our, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's one of our high level goals for the project, right? right? Yeah, yeah. You know, like it just, you know, that, that type of thing that's not going to happen again. Right? right. You know? And, yeah. um, so you just, you gotta, yeah, you gotta enjoy it when it happens and, yeah. and then keep going. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I think that is like, I think that's part of the, the, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of, it, it depends on where you want to go from there, but I think it, it can be easy to feel paralyzed by like, oh, we did that once and people really liked it. And like, to feel like, so now we have to do that again. You know, mm-hmm. it has to be like just as X, Y, Z as yeah. that. It has to, you know, we can't fuck it up. We can't like <laughs> not do as good a job next time, whatever. And I mean, you know, obviously you always, you always want to do a good job, but like there's like a, some assumptions about like, do we need to do that same kind of thing again? Do we need to do a thing for a while at all? And if we do like, you know, I think that feeling of being like, we did something that worked once and now we need to like, like you were saying, have that be our referent point for like everything, you know, like, like, and, and have that, that, um, that anxiety of like, Oh, can, can we make that exact same thing happen again? It's like, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I am very much, I'm certainly inspired by creative people that, have made a career of doing the work, you Mm -hmm. know? And when you look at the careers of people whose work you respect, like respect very much over time, not, it's very rare for them to be batting a thousand. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, you could, you can, you could argue possibly that like up until very near the end of his career, maybe like Stanley Kubrick didn't, I mean, Barry Lyndon isn't great. I, I mean, some people really love it. I don't know. It, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, there's, there's still like, yeah, there's just but, not a lot of artists. Where, but I mean, yeah. you know, when you look at, when you look at, at, you know, yeah, authors or especially like movie make, like I don't know. I was, I was just watching, uh, I was watching, uh, uh, I went and saw Hail Caesar, the Coen Brothers movie, mm-hmm. and then I, I, I had never watched Burn After Reading, and mm-hmm. you know, I had heard like mixed things about it, but I was like, let's check it out, and I watched it, and there were things I liked about it, but it's certainly not like one of their great movies or whatever. Yeah. And when I think about the Coen Brothers, I'm like, they are probably some of the oh yeah, I they, mean, they're some of the people that I it doesn't I, get much better than their career, I mean, right? Like, and and I but... and like as far as like people I respect creatively, like yeah. are like working now, but then it's like. They've made a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. Some of them aren't good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like they they have it's about doing the work and I think not 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 having too much of the fear that if you don't best yourself every time then the world's going to end because you look at people who you love their work and you're like oh yeah but they did kind of do that one thing that wasn't that great. But then they got over it, and then they made No Country for Old Men. Okay, yeah. you know. Um, or straight up, like, following Fargo with the Big Lebowski. Yeah. 
I mean, <laughs> who does that? That's right. Amazing. <laughs> and and beyond that, like I remember when I first saw the Big Lebowski because you just seen Fargo, right? It was like it was like I don't even understand this. Like I'm not right. in the right frame of mind to like. <laughs> You know, anyway, whatever. But yeah, yeah. like, they're, they're, yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I think that you know, <laughs> having having a long view, yeah, and saying like, it's about trying to figure out how to do something that you can that ha- that that trying to do something that has a shot at being something good, and if it doesn't quite get there. doing something that has a shot at being good next time, you know, and just like, like learn, like learning from that. And, you know, I don't know. I like, I, I I love, I love, I love creative people that continue doing great work, like into old age, especially Mm -hmm. like, I mean, I love Kurosawa, you know, was directing films in his late eighties, you know, and like, uh, uh, George Miller, you know, just oh, released Fury Road. And, like, you know, he, he the first Mad Max was in 1979. You know, like, he released his first movie before I was born and just released a movie last year that was, like, so vital and fantastic. Yeah. And in the middle... And you're going to make me bring up Babe Pig in the City. Exactly. Which is it, a brilliant movie. It is. It's, and, actu- I, it's actually amazing. Yeah. It's insane. But it wasn't like that was a... <laughs> a career success for him yeah. as far as like the box office for it or probably how the studio felt about it or whatever, you know, like if, if you only look at creative people in terms of like their great works, I think it's easy to un to, to, to deemphasize the fact that actually it's a process. And sometimes, yeah. So some, you know, cause like th- there's, if the Coen brothers, for instance, had, just canned all of their movies that didn't end up being good. Mm-hmm. Like they wouldn't have gotten a chance to make the ones that did end up being good, you know? And, and they probably would have canned some of the ones that would have ended up being good if they had, if they'd actually put them out there. So I don't know. It's a, it's a difficult yeah. well, I think, thing. I think the hard thing around, is like but. before you hit that kind of like, you know, best case scenario for project, basically like when you're, when you're, you know, when you're starting out and you're hoping to succeed, like that level of success to you, it's kind of like that is the goal. And you almost like you almost forget, like, they'll be the rest of my life. Like yeah. what happens after that? I don't know. I just need to get to that goal. Yeah. Right. And then you get to that goal and it's like, well, it's hard to imagine that there's like a higher goal. Right. Right. Like, yeah. Maybe I can repeat this, but like. Right. It's yeah, you need a totally different mindset. Yeah, and I think for some people that can end up being like a scale thing. You know, like when sorry, I'm taking this back to movie directors so much, but like you know, if you look at if you there there are some of these directors like I don't know, like an example would be like Sam Raimi or something. Mm -hmm. You know, where it's like okay, I'm making these really micro budget movies, and then or like uh, Peter Jackson. You know, it's like oh, and then next level is. Lord of the Rings, you know what I mean? And, like, so in some cases, maybe there is this whole thing of, like, oh, I did really well within this sphere. Now I'm in a totally other world of, like, huge scale, like, next level shit. Or maybe it's, like, you did something cool in the sphere that you work within, and it it doesn't have to be a linear 
progression to like now i need to get bigger and better and more uh you know more splashy and and have more millions of people you know like lining up for for my next thing um i mean i think that you know it's not it's not deep insight or anything but like in the end i feel like no individual thing really ends up mattering to your perception of like whatever your own worth or something mm-hmm. in the long term in a in in a like deeply meaningful way like everything that you've done ends up being a memory of that thing has happened it like it ends up being a fact right like if you're happy or not happy today, mm-hmm. like if you can, oh, I shipped that game and it was good. Like that's a fact. That's yeah. true. But it's not going to be the thing that makes you feel like, ah, and now in my day-to-day life, I am more satisfied and <laughs> right. serene. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And so if you're like, ah, but maybe if my next thing that I made was a huge blockbuster that you know made hundreds of millions of dollars then I would be more happy in my everyday life. No, you might achieve that and that might be good and it might make you more comfortable financially and all that kind of stuff. But like after it's happened, it'll just be another fact that you're like, Oh, that thing that I put out, it was the best selling thing of the year. That's true. Right. Yeah. That doesn't actually make me necessarily more satisfied or fulfilled person like just in the moment right now so it's sort of like it's certainly not a bad thing to like achieve a goal and make a thing that you're happy with but it is not the actual means to an end of like being overall a more like yeah you know uh, centered person yeah i mean the, the thing that will make it work is if like you just actually enjoy exactly. the process. Like That's long, exactly long it. Long term. Like I, mean, I just I like making the games. I'm like making the type of games I am making, right? Yeah. So Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like what matters I think is if you're happy with the process of of getting to wherever that ends up being. Because if you if it's all riding on like we need to roll a twenty and everybody needs to love this, then if you're miserable getting there, you're going to be miserable <laughs> afterwards. Um, but if you can find a place where you're like, I like what I'm doing every day and I want to do a good job while I'm doing it, but like I'm happy with the actual process of, yeah. of the thing, then like, I think that then you're in a good place, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, like for example, like I know for sure, like, you know, like, you know, off world and probably the rest of the games I make at, at Mohawk, right? they're not going to sell at the level of civilization. Right. And that's not, that's not my goal. Like, I mean, that would be great, obviously. Sure. But like, it's not, it's not even something I, I, I like trying to stay in that world where I was trying to hit that type of a sales goal, like would have made me a much less happy person because you, because it's, it's my goal is to, um, I'm happy as I'm happy as if I can innovate on mechanics, right? Sure. Yeah. And the bigger the project is, the harder that is to do. Right. Right. So, like, you know, if it in a sense, it's it's better for me 
to be in a position where I can sell less copies but be able to do the stuff that I'm interested in. Right. Right. As and long as as long as I can be something that makes the overall enterprise sustainable, yeah, you know, course, um, right. then like absolutely, you know, and there's stuff with what we're doing now with Tacoma that is like, you know, we we're a larger team now mm-hmm. and we are making a game that we couldn't make with a smaller team. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so like within the the expansion that we've done, it's it's justifying the project that we're working on and vice versa. Do you know what I mean? Um and and so I think that, you know, as long as it's a case of like we can do something that we think is worthwhile that we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And that's why we're like taking a, a a next step in you know team size and budget and all that kind of stuff. Then hopefully that makes it worth it. As opposed to yeah, that means to the end thing of like let's have more people so the game looks fancier so that we can sell more copies of it, you know, et cetera. Um, and you know, it hopefully if it's in the service of this will allow us to make a game that we want to make that nobody else would make that we wouldn't be able to make otherwise mm-hmm. then, you know, hopefully at that point, whether, you know, millions of people buy it or thousands of people buy it, the fact that you've made a thing that, that is something that could only have come from the process that you used to make it. And that like stands on its own is something that's worth interacting with. And like, you know, hopefully, yeah, as long as long as yeah, as long as you don't starve doing it, then right. then, yeah. then hopefully uh, then hopefully it was worth doing in the end. Yeah, yeah. that that's the big question for me for for me long term is like is is this type of indie development like sustainable? Like that's yeah. that's all I want. Yeah. Right? like I just want to be able to keep making the games interest us, you know, yeah. over and over. Right, right? and um, it's not necessarily something you see a lot of a company that just like is able to stay at a certain size, make a certain scale project and just do it, you know, over and over again, you know, it kind of like, you know, there's just that, that traditional thing where they just get, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Um, and then you either are too big to be sustainable or you're big enough that like, well, you're either too big to be sustainable and you address that by either going out of business or being acquired by somewhere, which is like, that leads to a whole, a whole other thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it is hard to say like, okay, we're in our comfort zone and we're going to like actually maintain that in a way that allows us to do things that we care about. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Do you want to talk about Tacoma a little bit or? Sure. Like, yeah. Um, like we, so, you know, the podcast probably won't come out for like a full year. Um, oh really? A whole yeah. year. Wow. Okay. Exactly. Like I've got them stockpiled. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. When I was when I was doing the the tone control stuff, I think that I yeah. Kind of like blasted them all out. Basically. Well, I I, I released them twice a month for know. like six or eight months. So like I think that the longest delayed one was like three months or something like that. But anyway, sure, no problem. I mean, th- then then this will be an interesting perspective well, on the be, game. Well, Tacoma be out by then. Uh, I mean, it depends. I guess like we just yesterday a year ago <laughs> uh announced that yeah we're gonna be in spring 2017 and we don't know exactly we don't have an exact date at this point so if it's a year from now 
The answer is maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I could I could even just, I could just hold the podcast till after the game show. Yeah, you so could you could put it out on release week is whatever yeah, you that's want. Tr- actually, that's that's probably would make sense. <laughs> um, no, I mean we're we're at a point right now where yeah we put the game out in front of uh, press and stuff um, last summer in mm-hmm. in twenty fifteen um, and yeah we basically between our own internal stuff and like sending the the game to playtesters like other developers that we know to playtest and give us feedback there was a bunch of core conceptual stuff that wasn't um as fully realized as we needed it to be to say like yes we can really invest in like we can be confident in investing in shipping making the rest of this game that we're that we've put on screen so you know the a lot of the last six months has been much more involved in re-examining a number of core assumptions about like game still takes place on a space station it's it's the same characters that live on the space station they have been um you know, it's, it's the same, like, fictional setting and a lot of the same core premise stuff, but a lot of it is about how things function. You know mm. what I mean? So it's like, how does gravity really function on this station? How would it really function on a station that was built for, like, long-term habitation? We have this augmented reality stuff that's, like, about, you know, the world being overlaid with digital um, projections. And, like, what are we really trying to say about how that would work? And what it means in our universe and how the player doesn't just, like, observe it or be near it, but actually engage with it and interact with it. So, you know, we, we've spent a fair amount of time, like, I don't know, we, we, we rethought what the fictional function of the station is and rebuilt, like, the actual like playable space of it entirely um and also yeah came back to just like what like this technology this ar technology like how do people in the fiction relate to it and how can we how can we express that to the player in a way that's direct and makes you think like oh i'm experiencing this in at least an abstraction of the way that someone in this world might and like what are we trying to say about what, what, yeah, I mean, like, why are you making a game about this? Like, um, I wanted to push ourselves outside of what we had already done mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, we did a kind of like period game, right? Like, we did like a, a 1995, like, it's a specific year in the past, and we wanted to do another game that's, you know, like, based off of the the heart of Gone Home in terms of, like, it's a first-person exploration game mm-hmm. about finding the story in this place. But I didn't, you know, we didn't want to say, like, it's like that, but 1960. It's like that, but 1840. It's, mm-hmm. it's like that, but, uh, you know, whatever. Um, a, you know, a, a foreign country instead of America or something. I felt like for us not to just, like get into kind of just like time and place Mad Libs. We need mm-hmm. to say like it takes place in a time that doesn't actually exist mm-hmm. yet. Um, 
And, you know, I think some of it is just, like, pure, like, geeky, like, I like System Shock, what if it was on a space station? (laughs) But, like, when you get, when you say, what if it was on a space station, what if it was on a space station, you know, 75-ish years from now, how do we extrapolate the time that we live in to something that we feel like isn't, like, this is going to be an accurate, you know, like, uh, uh prediction of how the future is really going to turn out, but a a plausible extrapolation of our time towards like where technology and, you know, kind of like geopolitical stuff could lead. Um, And so going from there, it's like, you know, I just think that augmented reality is a thing that makes sense as a technology that could become pervasive. You know, there's just like digital information that like supplements your understanding of the world. Um, so what if that was a big part of what being on this station was about? And so at that point, you're like, how do we represent that? But more importantly, how does that speak to pushing what we do with like explorable story to a place that isn't like anything we've ever done before mm-hmm. and hopefully isn't like anything that, that, that players have played before so that we're not repeating ourselves. And so that players don't feel like, Oh, I've just played this before, but so that we aren't just like, well, we have a bunch of solved problems, you know, let's do that again. Um, and so one of our, one of our big, um, points of reference was the immersive, um, theater production sleep no more Mm -hmm. that goes on in New York where, you know, something that I wanted to do was be able to say like, in Gone Home, I think it was really effective to say, like, okay, you're, you're hearing Sam's story in her own words, but you never encounter another player. You just imagine, like, oh, this is where they live. This is what they must have done here. And I thought it would... I, I think it's interesting to say, like, having the immediacy of actually being able to, like, be in the room with these characters while these moments are happening is really powerful, potentially, but we also didn't want to just like have living characters there that needed to react to what you did and needed to like look like humans and all that kind of stuff. So we were like, okay, futuristic technology, augmented reality. If we could have these kind of like 3d recordings of stuff that happened mm-hmm. and you could share the space with those characters while this stuff was happening, then that's cool. Um, but it's also not very much different from like half-life Two. Yeah. you know, in-world cutscenes or whatever, right? It's like standing near characters while they do a thing. It's like it, it's not like it's not cool, but being able to see an audio diary while it happens is like, it's fine, but it's not necessarily, a, it's not, how do I put this? Um, it's not an extension forward from what we've already done in any way except for presentation. Do you know what I mean? And so, um, what, what, what really interested us about sleep no more. And, you know, I'm, I won't go into it super amounts cause I've talked about it on other stuff, but it's like, it's the, it's this theater performance where you're in a space that's a converted motel and the audience is in the same space with the performers and they move throughout the space mm-hmm. and you can follow performers like between rooms and between floors. And they, you know, like, uh, they, they cross paths and do a scene and then one of them leaves one way and one goes the other way. And you're like, which one am I going to follow? And it, it's very, um, you're very involved with kind of like deciding how you're going to engage with the performance. And so like, that was the aspect of sleep no more that, that we really 
found to be to be especially valuable that idea of like not just being like near performers while they perform but being involved in like which aspect of this branching timeline am i going to engage with and like i can follow one thread and then come back and reconnect it back to something i saw before and it like it speaks to that that kind of that aspect of making connections between disparate points that i think gone home is about except within the space of like a real time kind of like performative um uh, uh expression and so you know some of the stuff that that we wanted to to push on was say like okay well if this is a digital recording of what happened with these characters and you can be in the room with them at the time if we were to expand that to say all of the characters on the station are in this wing and they're involved with this recording and some of them are off doing one thing. Some are off doing another thing. And some of them might split off and come and cross paths with the other characters and then move away. And you as the player know that you can only be in one place at one time. Right. But if we say this is a digital recording, so we're going to give you full control of rewinding and fast forwarding and pausing and moving the characters through the timeline and then also being able to move yourself in space and really be directly involved in that entire dialogue of like, okay, I just watched what these characters were doing, but then I saw those characters came and, and met up with them at this point. So I should see what happened there. Okay. Now I'm going to rewind it and follow them back to their starting point and make all these connections and kind of like reconstruct a picture of here's all the stuff that was happening in this place and what it means in relation to each other. Then that's something that makes it worth having decided to pursue this fictional premise in the first place, right? Because if it's just gone home, but the house looks like a space station and there's futury stuff in it, mm -hmm. like, I mean, maybe that's fine, but kind of why bother? You know, yeah. like what we really want to do is say like, here's how we pay off the implications of like why it matters to me as a player of a video game that I'm in this futuristic setting with this like unfamiliar technology. It's not, it's not just, it's not just nice to look at. It's like, it, it, it's, it's like you were saying about, you know, wanting to innovate and continue to explore within the mechanical space that you work in. It's like, mm -hmm. this justifies me being there as a player. Like, that's why it matters that I'm even like driving this, this, this whole experience. You know, I'm not passive. I'm not just being an observer. I am taking advantage of what the premise offers to really be like deeply involved in my understanding of what's going on in this game world. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of development left to do of actually like putting the stuff in <laughs> a lot of the stuff right. in the game. Um, but, you know, in the meantime, since the last time that we were, that we were kind of like, taking the game out and parading it around that's you know that was the stuff that we had to kind of ask ourselves the hard questions and be like what are we actually trying to talk about and are we doing it right and we aren't so like how do we do it and so hopefully now we're at a point where we're like we know how we're doing it so let's get the rest of it done <laughs> you know what i mean yeah yeah, yeah. that was a long answer sorry yeah well no i mean I, it makes sense to go to go sci-fi so which enables like an actual new interaction with something that happened in the past. Right. Right. And that pushes us not to, it pushes us to say like, we can't relate 
to this content in the exact same way we have before, you know, as developers. So yeah, you know, uh, yeah. I think if you, if you allow yourself to do the thing that you're already comfortable with, then you'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Well, so there's, so this whole type of game, mm-hmm. you know, if you, you know, if you lump you in with like games, like, you know, um, like Durester and, um, Firewatch just came out. Yeah, Firewatch a year um, ago. <laughs> a year ago. I was like, oh man, so much has changed since then. Um, the it's it's interesting to see the progression of you know one of the ways that you could describe Gone Home was well, it's a game about people, right? Yeah. You know, like you know, which has always been like kind of an important goal that for for video games, which has been hard to get to, is like how do we make a game about people? And of course one of the great ironies about Gun Home is like it's about people, but there's no real people in the right. game. There's right? no people at all, yeah. And and that's kind of actually been the standard for, you know, that genre or subgenre or yeah. whatever, right? And, yeah. and so yeah, with Firewatch, it's like, well, okay, the step they took was um audio. Right. Right. Like yeah. that's, that's there's some there's someone else, but you're only hearing like you're interacting with them, but yeah, only over the radio, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, for Tacoma, you know, you're seeing characters now, but they're not gonna they're not gonna react to you, right? Right. And they're very abstracted. It's like the impression of characters, right? Right. Yeah. right. So you don't have to deal with all of the like you know the messiness of humans, uncanny valley, yeah. and also AI reactions. Yeah, all the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also like aside from what it allows us to avoid, it also enables us to say if in the fiction it's a recording Mm -hmm. that justifies you being able to actually have interactive control over it because if it was a person you couldn't be like i'm rewinding them yeah so yeah yeah um but i guess what i'm getting at is like are we on this path where you know you wanted to make a game about people with gone home but you really had no choice like with like right four people you know, scrappy new little studio. Like, yeah. well, the only thing we can do is like you're finding things and you're listening to stuff. That's, yeah, that's basically one way. Um, like, do you see like ten years from now, twenty years from now, like you're gonna be able to make games about people that really have people in them? Like, or is that even something that you'd want to get to? Or? I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't even. I don't. I think that there's a lot of. I think there's a lot of aspects of game creation that practically speaking quickly um quickly arrive at diminishing returns you know what i mean i think some of that is i I think that trying to photorealistically render characters Mm -hmm. is one i think also trying to make characters like ai characters respond dynamically and believably in like a non-combat setting is another like i think that it is i think that it there there is a relatively low bar for like oh yeah they seem like they're really like in combat with me yeah but when you get to like to more ambient behavior i think it's like when a character is in combat it makes some sense for them to act fairly mechanical because they're like I'm attacking, I'm dodging, I'm like retreating, like, you know, they're, they're in these states. But when, when an AI is ambient, it really, it very quickly is like, Oh, they're, they're just patrolling. They're going to their interest points, whatever. I, I either, I can't knock stuff off the shelf because they won't know how to react to it. Or I knock stuff off the shelf and they don't know how to react to it. You know, like it's, and so like, I think that I personally 
would not want to push towards those aesthetic goals using those tools. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think I would want to say like, I want to make you really feel like you're in the room with another living human person by having them be very convincingly rendered in 3d and have very convincing AI behaviors. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I think that if that's your goal, then it may take more than just doing a really good job at the stuff that we already know how to do to get there in a legitimate way. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I, I don't know what it means exactly, but I think that, you know, the only way to, to cross to the other side of the uncanny, uncanny Valley is simply to use video. Like, I mean, if you want to show people a picture of someone then you just need to show them the fucking picture. Right. And I mean, you know, the problem then becomes like, well, now you can't navigate around them in 3d space. Well, maybe you don't need to be navigating around them in 3d space to get the aesthetic payoff that you're looking for. You know, I, I think a lot of it is like throwing away assumptions, you know, and not saying like, well, if we're going to do this, we have to do it this way. Right. And I think that when you look at something like her story, just mm -hmm. as a, right. a point of reference, it's like, if that, game had been done with a 3d animated character it would have been bad <laughs> like inherently bad yeah. because part of the well, i mean not part, like the heart of the game is about like i'm looking at an actual real person and i'm interacting with these clips of her to like learn about stuff but like there's no substitute for that aspect of the aesthetic experience so like me personally I don't see what we're doing as a trajectory from like no people to very abstract people to more realistic people to like mm -hmm. a perfectly believable person. You know, I think that if anything, I mean, honestly, personally, I feel like Tacoma is the largest game I would want. I, I don't think I want to make a game as big as Tacoma again, probably, or at least, you know, whatever. I mean, who, who can speak for 20 years from now right? or 10, right. whatever. Right. But like in the immediate future, it is certainly not my goal for the next step. How many like people are working on Tacoma? Eight. Eight. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, you know, the goal is not to be 16 and then yeah, 32 yeah. and then <laughs> 64. Um, uh, and so, I, you know, I, I don't know what the longest long-term yeah. stuff is, but it certainly is not like a linear trajectory in my head anyway. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, you could say like the consistent through line of like Gone Home, Firewatch, her story is that, you know, these are games where it feel like the the developers like took mm, they took no compromises to try to make the game about real characters as much as possible like right. that was their guiding light yeah felt like. sure okay. um, and you know that meant that they threw away a lot of stuff the other you know they 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 heavily constrained the type of game they made um you know her story is like is sort of this classic example of like, wow, this is, this is brilliant. You know, now what? Right. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, where do, sure. we, where do you go from here? Um, but uh, I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe that's it. Like that's, that's an important goal, right. That, you know, making games about, you know, meaningful characters and we'll just always be limited with like what our technology can do. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And figuring out, yeah, well, and, and a lot of I think a lot of times it just comes down to time. Like at some point, different, like not necessarily just like better technology, but like different kinds of technology comes mm -hmm. along, and maybe you know, 
that opens a door to be like, oh, we can talk about different things differently, you know? Um, but that's the kind of stuff that's also really, you can't plan towards that, sure. you know? Um, so I think utilizing what we have to the, to, in a way that like emphasizes what it's good at the best mm-hmm. we can, um, is, is certainly, you know, a valuable thing for people to be doing. And then if further on, it's like, oh, now we can show different kinds of stuff, uh, than we were able to before, then that's fantastic. And that's just another new, um, you know, piece of territory for people to start exploring. Right. Right. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, we maybe have a podcast. <laughs> yeah. I think I it was like pretty epic. <laughs> I mean, when did, I think that was like a three and something hour. Yeah. I'm almost sure. I don't know if we've, we're five minutes from the four, four hour mark. There we go. That's a good, that's a good, that's, that's a good, that's just, a like, that's just like a tasty podcast. <laughs> that will fill up some phones. Just gobble that, you know, on a good, uh, drive from, drive from Portland to Seattle, a <laughs> little bit of traffic. Yep. Perfect. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me on. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing this. <laughs>